It's time for another episode of Last Drinks, a podcast where we have conversations for the sober and the sober curious, hosted by me, Maz Compton, sober since 2015. Hello, delightful humans. Yes, it is another episode of Last Drinks, but before we get to my chat with 360, who you will know as one of Australia's most celebrated rappers, he is just gold. He's golden. He is heavily sober these days. I met him when he was the other way, and I was the other way around. We were heavily intoxicated. Um, but we'll get to that in a minute. Let me just give you some quick updates from me. I lost my job in radio, guys, and that was a bit of a shock. I'm not going to lie. It hasn't been a fun time. It has not been fun being Maz Compton for the last few weeks because I was told that the show that I was doing on radio, if you kind of follow me on socials, you'd know I do a radio show in the mornings. It was broadcast all around New South Wales. I was told that that show would no longer be on the airwaves in 2024. It's a cost-cutting exercise. It is a decision that's been made by management that is not a reflection on how good I am at my job, how much I love my job, or any of those things. It purely just is we're cutting costs and the cost that we're cutting next is the line on the spreadsheet that your show is on. It has been officially redacted. So that sucks. This is the second time this has happened to me (laughs) in the last little while in radio. It's brutal. It's really brutal. And a few of my friends have lost their jobs as well. And um, it's just hard. Like if you've ever been through a job loss, it just sucks. It really does. And, you know, I think the, the thing that stings the most in radio is you get out of bed at four in the morning, and this is not a complaint, this is just a fact. You get out of bed at four in the morning, you go in and you do a radio show and you just give of yourself and you create content for three hours a day and you exhaust yourself performing and engaging with people and you share so much of your life. And then one day someone who's probably never listened to the show makes a decision that ends that journey for you. And that's the brutality of, I think, a lot of industries. Cost-cutting isn't anything new. Um, And and especially, you know, the brutality of radio is not, it's not like anybody was like, oh, geez, they got rid of a show that was really good. No one's surprised by that. It's just the, it's just the way the cookie crumbles. But you know what? It's been really hard. And I think the reason why I feel okay to share about it on today's episode is because I've done all of the crying. I've done, I've been angry. I've been disappointed. I've vented to my husband. I've written in my journal. I bitched about it to my friends. I spoke to my therapist. (laughs) I, I really have done a deep dive on processing this part of my story and processing it in a way where I'm not going to go down that negative spiral that sometimes you can go down when something really unfair happens. And some of those negative thoughts were, well, obviously I'm so shit at my job because this is now the second time that I've lost my job. And I had to really like fight hard to like rein those thoughts in and go, hang on a second. 
this decision isn't a reflection of you. You can't take it personally. This was a business decision. You are just the casualty. It doesn't take away from the fact that the show was awesome. I loved doing it and I'm really good at it. So they're the things that, you know, that are a bit unfortunate. It was like something that I love doing, something that I'm really good at, and I was having the time of my life doing my job, which not many people can say. I was one of those lucky few people. And now, unfortunately, that job doesn't exist. (laughs) So um, it's just a bummer. But I'm going to be okay. I will bounce back. I'm taking some time out. I've got a few things on the boil. And I'll let you guys know what I decide to do. I don't know at this stage what I what I even want to do. But what I do want to do is I want to keep making this podcast because I know that it changes lives and it helps people. And that lights me up, ladies and gentlemen. On that note, I want to read a quick message from somebody who sent me a message, obviously. <laughs> That's funny. Um, where are you? Sorry, literally should have been more prepared going through my phone trying to look for message. Here we go. Hi, Maz. I just wanted to reach out to say I love your pod and have totally binged the shit out of it. I'm four weeks booze-free today. It's a huge achievement for me. I've been hanging for wine o'clock every afternoon feeling like I needed that relief, and it feels so good to have it out of my mind and not feel guilty. Instantly, I started sleeping better. I'm more patient with the kids and have so much more energy. When you say you've unlocked a superpower, girl, you are so right. My new goal is 100 days, but honestly, just taking drinking off the table is pretty appealing too. Thanks, Maz. Your pod is awesome. Thanks, babe. That message was awesome and came on a day where I needed to be reminded that this podcast is important. It is helping people and I freaking love doing it. So that is a huge encouragement to me. And I'm super stoked for you for your journey. And here's the thing, right? Like it's your journey. You take 100% credibility for making a great choice. So well done to you. I'm just really stoked to be a part of people's stories. And I love hearing about it when I am. I love hearing where you guys are up to. So thanks for that. This chat with 360 is pretty awesome. 360 and I met in, I'll give you the backstory now because we did talk about it when we recorded, but I feel like I just want to get to the juicy stuff of the chat. Um, But 360 and I met in Adelaide. When I lived in Adelaide, a friend of mine was like, hey, do you want to come to the Gov to a gig? Um, It's a rapper called 360. And I was like, sure. I live in Adelaide. And at the time, I basically had no other friends other than my work crew and a lot of free time on my hands because I was doing breakfast radio. So I, it was my first breakfast radio job actually. And, um, I was like, cool, let's go. So we went, it was an all ages gig. And instantly I was super mad at my friend. I was like, there are 16 year old children here and I am 30. (laughs) And I don't know if I really want to be in this room right now. Um, but 60 got on stage and was just it was just, he's amazing. He was amazing. Like he was bigger than the room. He was so engaging and talented and brilliant. And we went backstage afterwards and my friend introduced me to him. And I was just like, dude, I'm in awe. Like you're, you're magic. That was so cool. And we kind of like, that was that. 
And then, you know, a year later, I think he came back and did another gig in Adelaide and we hung out for a little bit. And then um, I ended up with a job in Melbourne and he lived in Melbourne. And so we hung out a few, like a handful of times. And all the while we hung out these, you know, handful of times, there was always drinks. It was always like beers upon beers upon beers upon Jager bombs. And that's just how you hang out with people. And it was always a fun time, I guess, until that hangover the next day. And when I was in Melbourne, I, again, like would interview 60 for radio purposes when he was um, promoting music and we'd go to his gigs and then sometimes we'd hang out. That was like really about it. And I had no idea that he was battling a huge problem at the time because he was just, it felt like being normal. He was normal, like as in we would go out and we would all carry on and get wasted, but I didn't know that he was struggling with such a huge demon in his in his world. And so I listened to his story on the Imperfects podcast, and it's a real deep dive. It's very raw, it's very confronting, and I bawled my eyes out when I heard what he had been through, how he had overcome it, the shame, the guilt, the disappointment. And um, even after he got sober, what that was like. And when I heard him talking to the Imperfects team about his story, I was like, I would love to have a chat to this guy too. We've got a bit of shared history. I'm interested in your story. And I just wanted to reconnect and be like, hey, man, you're freaking amazing for getting through what you've gotten through. So I reached out. It's It's all in the chat. And I'm very grateful to 60 for, you know, caring enough about me and what I'm curating content-wise to share his story on this podcast. It's a it's a pretty big deal um, that he would do that. So I'm very grateful. And you're going to love the chat. It's He's just, he's phenomenal. He's got some really great ways that, some tools that he uses now in his sobriety and his last drink story is it's pretty major. So enjoy this episode of Last Drinks with 360. I had no idea about the demons that you were living with, really. And so when I listened to the Imperfects conversation that you had on that podcast, man, I was just in tears and my heart broke for you that you've been through such a rough time. But... You have come out the other side and that's why I wanted to talk to you because it's so important to let people know that things are hard and things get tough, but we can do hard things and we can get to the other side of dark times and your story is a beacon of light for people who might be going through some stuff. So I guess where I want to start, where I usually start my podcast is to ask people about their last drink. Now, I know... For you, your story involves substances. So, you you know, feel free to interpret that however you want. But like the last hurrah, w- what was that and where were you? Um, so it's all quite hazy when it comes to like uh, what I, when I was drink when I stopped drinking, because um, I stopped drinking before I stopped doing all the, all the drugs and stuff. Um, I went to like, went to rehab. Uh, I, I, I was, I was doing a, um, a tour for my third album, 
uh, Utopia, and I was on uh, a lot of a lot of codeine at the time. It was like, and I had a bar and bass show, and I had an overdose right before, like, the show, and we had to cancel the whole tour. It was like this big. I, I, no one, no one knew what I what I was going through. Like I had told absolutely no one. I was just keeping it all to myself because I was just mm. so ashamed of it all. Mm. Um, and I woke up in hospital and I was on suicide watch. They thought I tried to kill myself. Um, I didn't. I was just taking. I, I, my tolerance had just grown so much that I was taking just insane amounts of it every single day just to feel something. And um, that was. That that's after that, uh, that was really rough. Like them handing a phone and me having to tell my parents oh my God. what had happened and all this. And but it was like a blessing because it was like from there went straight, came straight home to Melbourne. Went went into rehab for about a month, and that's when I stopped drinking. But um, I got put on this stuff called Suboxone, which is um like drug replacement therapy for anyone that's using opioids. Okay. Um, so it's basically stops you from um, getting high from opiates um, and stops you from getting withdrawal. So it keeps you, it keeps you just on this balanced out level, um, but you have to just continually take it all the time. So I was on that for years uh, and I, I still, I still wasn't over the addiction phase. So I, I, I got to this point where I was like, um, I talked to my doctor into putting me on um, methadone instead of Suboxone, which was a really, really horrible mistake. But I was still, I was still chasing the high. Mm. I was still wanting to feel something, and and because you don't really feel anything when you're on Suboxone, but on methadone you can, you can abuse it. So I, I was, uh, I made the swap and, and when I made that, everything just started spiraling. Like, um, I just started, I put on so much weight. I got to like 120 kilos. Um, and it was just stuck in this endless vicious cycle where I was abusing it, hiding it. Um, still afraid to tell anyone, but then I got to a point where I was like, all right, this is just this has just gone so far now. If I don't do something, it's something bad's going to happen. Like I'm, mm. I'm either going to die or yeah, there's the worst, the worst thing possible could happen. So I, uh, I just told, told my folks and, and I was like, um, I've got to go to rehab like properly. I've got to do a actual four month stint in there. Like I need to need to figure out how to conquer these demons, not just, brush them to the side. Mm. Um, and that, that was, that was a, that was a big moment. Like that, that was like one of the first times I'd actually reached out and, and said, I need help, which is so, so diff. I find that just so hard. Um, it is hard. Even to this day, I still find it incredibly hard to say when I'm struggling. Um, I just feel like it's, it's, it's being a burden all the time. And I know it's not, it's like, it's just this thing that you tell yourself that you are, you're going to be just a, a, a source of shame for your family. And, and, and you're going to put them through a lot of, a lot of hardship when you tell them what's actually going on. But they, 
behind it all, they, they just want to know that. Mm. Um, like the people who care for you the most, they want to know if you're struggling. They don't want you to hold it to yourself. And I, I was, I became a master of just, just like putting on a brave face. Um, but it got to the point where even when I was saying that I was good and thought I was such a master at it, it was clear that I wasn't, Yeah. You know? Um, my, you know, I think you could see it in my eyes. Like there's just constant pain. Um, I just was not healthy. I just didn't look good. So, so there was no real hiding it. So I couldn't, mm. I couldn't just continue to lie about it. Um, and then, but that four month period in rehab was incredible. Like it was a really, really tough, really hard thing, but the people you meet there just you connect so much with you have you have really amazing laughs and it's just very fun it felt like going back in high school and and making friends again um and since yeah since then i've just been like i, I thought i was going to come out of uh rehab after four months and just hit the ground running i thought i was going to be like all right straight back into music releasing albums touring and stuff but I got out and it was about a year and a half probably of, of needing to feel really, really shit and just raw. And I'd had no, no confidence in myself whatsoever. I just was in this dark period for, for about, yeah, a year and a half. Um, and now, yeah, fast forward to now and things are going really, really well. Things are, mm. things are amazing. Like things have just changed, but I've had to, it's, I've had to put in so much work to get here. Yeah. A lot of exercise, um, a lot of communication and being honest about things, which is, which was like just a nightmare for me in the past mm. has, has now become something that I'm getting really good at. Um, I've been working with a life coach who's been helping me with all the little, the, all the small things that I find hard to, to do just in, in day to day things of, uh, has been the most the most remarkable thing for me um, working with a coach and like I was I, I yeah this oh, this story sort of just jumps everywhere but um that's why I love like, it I was I was um when when music started taking off I just I've always been a really had a this people pleaser inside me and just wanted to want everyone to just like me I don't don't want to be disliked in that and when the music sort of took off, it kind of amplified that. Like it made, made the people pleasing, like turn, go on steroids kind of thing. Like, um, I, that there was a few times that I, I had said some things that landed me in hot water. Um, I think it was either political statements, um, or just things that I didn't think about much before I said it and just landed me in this where I'd get a lot of backlash from people. Um, and that, that really knocked me around um, mm. and, and I, it really, it affected me to the point where I was, I'd lost track of who I was as, as a person. Like I, I felt like in every interview I was doing and pretty much every meeting I was doing, I was like very agreeable, um, just very diplomatic in, in everything I was saying. I was just, everything was just not to rock the boat because I was just so fearful of, of what had happened in the past. Yeah. So what I've been doing with, with my coach is uh, he's been 
seen being so good, having someone there to hold me accountable and keep me honest in putting, practicing, like being way more assertive, put, setting boundaries with people, being honest about things if I'm uncomfortable um, and just being authentically myself again, which is, I feel like I've, I've just really lost myself in during the, the drugs, the fame, all, all the stuff, all of it. I just really lost sight of who I was. And I feel like in the last two years, I've really come to reconnect and, and realize the person that I am again. And yeah, it's been, it's been a remarkable journey. Um, you touched on, even, um, even though things have been so dark, I wouldn't change anything. I wouldn't change any of it. Cause I'm, I'm loving how things are shaping up now. Mm. Um, I know I was on this like amazing trajectory with music before the drugs and stuff messed everything up. And it's, I often do think about, I wonder what life would be like if I didn't like mess it all up like that, but you can't really dwell on those things, I think. Oh, you can't go back. Look, you, you make a really interesting point and I kind of almost just want to focus on this because there's so much, there's so much there to unpack. Like we could do 67 hours on what you've just told me, right? If you want to do a deep dive into all of the nuances, all of the things, all of the wormholes, but the people pleasing thing is so key because I feel like it's something that we, I, I have a PhD in people pleasing because I was told as a little girl to do things and it was, you do it to be a good girl. Like you need to be a good girl. You need to be nice. You need to be polite. And I'm not talking about not using your manners or sitting. I'm just talking about like in general, the whole vibe is we, we are, programming people that they always have to please everyone else to the point where you get to an adult's brain capacity with the ability to use your prefrontal cortex and use logic and use the upstairs and downstairs brain and all of that. But it's so confusing because we don't know what we want anymore because all we've done is please everybody else. So then we get on this trajectory where we're disconnected from self. We don't know what we want for ourselves, but we're pleasing everyone else and it's not ticking any boxes and we're exhausted and we're using all of our gifts and we're not sleeping at night and we have insomnia. So we start drinking because we, and we self-medicate and it's like this, I hear this story all the time and it drives me insane. And I think what, you know, what the interesting thing for me, for you is that I feel like we all kind of almost start in this same place of disconnect from self. What do I want? Who am I? And I'm not talking about I want to be famous and have a rap career. And I'm talking about like what imprint do we want to leave on this world? Like who do we want to help? How do we want to show up and inspire people? And it's not about pleasing everybody else. It's about using what God put in there for the greater good. That's why I do radio. That's why I do podcasting. That's my gift. It took me so long to figure that out. And so you live in disconnect, you live in disharmony, you live in dis-ease. So then we go to the bottle shop or the drugstore or the pharmacy and we get something to numb us. And, and this is, I think, where, and I'm not like a behavioral analyst at all, but I think this is where a lot of it starts, where we just start self-medicating because we don't know how to tap into core self and truth and authenticity. And then we just end up at some point pulling up stumps. So for me, yeah. it was the, the end of 2014 that my friend died and I drank a bottle of wine that day. And I was like, well, that's a weird reaction. 
why am I drinking a bottle of wine? Because my friend died. Like it's not bringing my friend back. And that was the start of my sober curiosity when I realized alcohol has become my multi-tool of coping. I have no other tools in the toolkit. This is not serving me anymore. Your story is you ended up in a rehab facility with, you know, people around you who are qualified to help you navigate all of the things that happen when you decide you don't want to do that anymore as a way to respond to life. Mm. So you do the hard yards and you come out the other side. And what I think is so interesting, Matt, is you said like you went to, it wasn't like you got out of rehab and hit the ground running. You got out of rehab and started the hard work. And I think Mm. that's a really important thing for people who are like sober curious thinking of giving up booze because it's not working for you. Like you don't just stop drinking or doing whatever you're doing and your life just magically becomes a fairy tale. It's like that's when you get that pit of regret in your stomach of all of the dumb shit you did and all of the poor choices and you have to do a lot of forgiving and and I call them the come to Jesus moments where you're like, oh, God, okay, you know what, I can I can let go of that. And I need, you know, it's a lot of, it's a lot of letting go of all of the stuff that we want to try and control. Uh, Is that sort of what that season was like for you? Yeah. And I think I just became a professional victim. I think everyone does when they're in addiction or, you know, alcoholism as well. I just was like in this cycle of like, I was a victim of my circumstances. Like everything that I, all of my circumstances, I was looking at with a negative light, like, okay, I've been thrust into the public eye and spotlight and shit. And I was just seeing how that was just a hurdle and just, just making everything bad Mm. instead of seeing it like, oh, wow, I've got this amazing life that I'm blessed to live. I was like, oh, it's just like, I can't meet a girl because they're, then they're only interested in 360. They're not actually interested in Matt. Um, it's just like this constant, like telling yourself reasons why you can't, you've got to stay down and, and in this cycle of self-pity and shit. And it's, it's really, really brutal. Um, and it's hard for people to give tough love because you don't want to hear it, but mm. you need to hear it because yeah. no one, no one's going to save you. You have to do it yourself. And that's like the most important thing I reckon I learned is that you need to, you need to just cut that in a, in a monologue and, and start changing it. Like you need to, you need to almost like, you need to have that attitude of pull your finger out, even though I I think that can be toxic at times. Mm. Um, you need to really, really have a hard look at yourself and like, almost like you're talking to yourself and slap, you slap yourself. So, so you, you stop looking at everything with this just negative lens on everything and, and seeing how you can, just turning everything into being a victim, you know, Mm. um, it's hard to, hard to explain, but did you, did you get that? A hundred percent. And I think that what, so I always talk about like the long, the long conversation in the mirror. I've had a lot of chats with Maz in the mirror and they're my moment. They're my, you know, like pull your finger out moments. But what I found because of that PhD in people pleasing, I found that I had to learn how to say no. That was the thing that I had to learn how to do. So I ended up taking on, and this is part of the reason why I drank because it was my escapism because I took on so much on my, I took on the, I took the weight of the world on my shoulders and I took on, I didn't know how to say no. And I didn't know how to park stuff that wasn't my responsibility. So 
those long, hard chats in the mirror with Maz, you know, went al- along the lines of like, is it, do you, is this your responsibility right now? Or are you just doing this to like get ahead in your career or not upset that person or, you know, try and end up in this room or whatever, whatever it is. Right. So I had to learn, um, I had to learn how to put down healthy boundaries in a, for a lot of things for myself and, and my, and through that whole kind of process, which I'm still, look, I'm still in therapy and I'm still working it out, but through the process, my new mantra is not my horse, not my rodeo. And so if something comes to me and it's, it's like not my responsibility to do, I'm like, that's not my horse, that's not my rodeo. And I just move along. And instead of then going on a spiral of guilt and feeling like I failed because I didn't do the extracurricular, I've managed to reconcile balance and go, this is okay. You don't have to save the world. <laughs> That's huge. That's amazing. Yeah, it's, it is huge, but it comes from sitting in the dark places and you sat there too. So what did, you know, like what does your world look like now without booze, without drugs? What are the processes that you've got in place to like keep yourself accountable to your choice to be sober? Um. So... Diet is eating, eating, help, just being healthy in every single way has been huge for me. Um, going to the gym, um, starting boxing, just, just looking after, looking after my health is, is the main, easily the main thing and going to the gym that, Mm. that just keeps me, um, energized and focused. Um, also just like, like what you said, um, figuring out the person you are was like, a huge part because I felt like I just lost myself, but I just needed to reconnect again. And it was like, uh, what, who am I? Like, what, what are my values and what, what are my principles and stuff like that? And that figuring that out has been huge. Like I, I was, I was so, so similar with the, not being able to say no, not being able to lay boundaries. Like I've never in, in every relationship I've been in, I've never, ever, been good with communication i've never put boundaries down i would just let things fly and just always be chill about everything and then that would just build resentment Mm. and i'd end up tapping out of a relationship early and it would just constant just guilt and i'd want to get out of it but didn't want to because i wouldn't want to let the let the girlfriend down you know now i'm in a place where it's like um my my coach is like keeping me keeping me honest and Mm keep me in a place I've met someone now and, and where, um, we're going so amazingly. Like it's, it's, it's like, it's, it's quite mind blowing. I feel incredibly blessed, um, for everything that's happened in the last few years has just been going from strength to strength after such a dark period as well. It's, it's quite really, really, really cool to think about it. And I'm so, yeah, things are just going really good. I'm very happy. I'm so happy to hear that like it's so Mm. everyone I talk to on my podcast out of everyone it's like a hundred people or whatever not one person has said that sobriety was a dumb idea like not one Mm. person has gotten to sobriety some people came to sobriety and have had slip-ups and have had things to deal with right but the general takeaway is 100% of people who are living out of that space this space this shared space are like this is great. And 
most of those people say a similar thing to what you said, Matt, which is I wouldn't change it even though it was really hard and really dark and very scary at times to look back on. Um, they wouldn't change the journey because, and I got asked this question a while ago and I surprised myself with the response. And so somebody said to me, like, I was talking about how I had my first drink when I was 15 and I got absolutely like wasted at a party and like carried out. And it was super humiliating and just like the worst experience. And you would think after such a negative experience with alcohol that you'd stop drinking, but like some, for some reason, cause I was a teenager, I went and drank the next weekend, right? Like normal teenage stuff. And this person said to me, like, what would, what would you say now to 15 year old Matt's like to that girl, that drunk girl at the party? And I was like, well, don't change. Cause then you don't get here. Right. Mm. And I love here. Here's great. And there's so far to go in my like progressive revelation of sobriety. I've got so much work to do. I've got so much to give. I've got so many people to help, but you don't get here if you don't let her figure it all out in her yes. own stumbly, weird, fucked up way because there's no right way to sobriety. Do you know what I mean? And that's why I mm. think your story, like it, it just got me. It got me in the heartstrings when I heard you breaking down on, on the Imperfects podcast because I was like, it. firstly, it takes a real brave, vulnerable person to just put that story out there, any story, whatever that story is, owning our stories is like so huge to be able to do. Um, and I just, I just, I had this realization of like, I've known you and I've kicked around with you in circles, but like, do you ever really know anyone? I had mm. no idea. And you weren't actively trying to hide anything from me. Like we were just hanging out. But you, it just gave me this sense of like, we don't really know. And so therefore, like, we should never judge and we should always show kindness and empathy because you don't know what people are hiding and sharing our stories is important because you don't know whose life you're going to change. Yes, 100%. And for you, it sounds like it's been quite spiritual. Have you, have you always been quite spiritual? I've like always that? been super spiritual, but like... I grew up in a Christian household um, and I've had to really unpack my spirituality. So I've had to sort of deconstruct what God and universe and spirit mean for me out of that um, really like one way du duopoly that I was taught. Like we're in, you're mm. out we're right, you're wrong, you're going to heaven, you're not. Like that's how I grew up. I've had to park all of that, scratch all of that, deconstruct it all and figure out like what is this all about and who am I in all of this? And we, how many, how many summers do we get? Like not that many, so I want to make them count. So I think the foundation of spirituality was always there, but it was just really messed up with religion for me. And I've had to like really park all of the religious stuff and just come to, yeah, like I'm, I'm so down with saying that I have like a spiritual higher power belief system or a faith system, but it's not, you won't find it in a Bible. Mm, yeah. Same. I, I, I'm so surprised at how, how, like I was very, I used to pray as a kid, um, felt very connected to God. Um, I wasn't very religious. Like I didn't really know much about it, but I was just always in contact. Um, and it's, it's been really incredible reconnecting with that again. Um, 
that's been amazing. Like, cause I, like I used to drink so much before shows. It was the way that I calm my nerves, like mm. to, to let loose on stage. Like it just made me feel kind of free mm. where now that I'm not drinking, when I get up there, I feel very, very uptight. I get very nervous, anxious. I see myself through other people's eyes. Like I feel like my, I don't know what to do with my hands. I just get so self-conscious. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. But actually uh, meditating, um, drinking tea and praying before each show um, and just stepping out into that uncomfortableness, like just letting faith take the wheel kind of thing has been huge, has been a massive part of it. Yeah. Um, and and sitting, sitting in uncomfortableness or uncomfortability, I don't know what the correct word is, um, is not something we're taught to do because it's mm. uncomfortable. So we go, well, I'm not going to sit there because that sucks. And that's why, that's why I have an ice bath at home. <laughs> sitting in an ice bath is not comfortable, but it teaches me when I'm in there that we can overcome hard things and we can get through hard things and we are actually built for it. But you've got to, it's like a muscle, right? Like you've got to work on all, all of those things that you mentioned, like all of those things that are helping you, like the meditation, the drinking of the tea, like the ritual of drinking tea, um, all that stuff you've got to get good at. Like it, I'm sure the first time you did that before a show, you were like, who the hell, who the hell am I right now? Right? Like having a bit of an om and a cup of herbal tea. But like as it becomes habituation for you, that's now your process and that gets you onto the stage and and maybe – Maybe it's okay to feel uncomfortable. Maybe we never will get used to it, but like better, better go down that road than try to avoid it with all of the substances and all of the booze. hundred percent. I'm, I've, I've been wanting to do the ice bath thing for a while now. Is it, um, is it life changing? Mate, what, like it's so, I feel like an insane person. So we get it down to about eight or nine degrees and you get in there and it sucks so hard and it's so painful sometimes depending on what like if you had like a you know a big session at the gym or whatever but three minutes is usually what you just get to and it's amazing like you because you get in and it takes your breath away and then you're hyperventilating and you're up here in your head and then after a minute it's like so chill and bliss and your breathing slows down and then all of a sudden your three minutes is up and then getting out's the worst because you've got to move again and feel it's also about what it does. It's not just like to tell a cool story. Like there are scientific reasons why it's great for your body. It's great for your mental health. It's great for, you know, reducing inflammation. And it's just, I'm, I'm fully addicted. I have, I have a cold shower in the morning and an ice bath most days. I've got to, I've got to make that step because I'm so bad with cold water. <laughs> You'll get, you. I don't think you get good at it though, right? This is also what I like about it is it never gets easy. And I think that maybe that's like a really great parallel in life. Is that mm. I don't think it ever gets easy, but you just get better at doing the hard stuff. Yeah, that's it, isn't it? That's, that's, that's what it's all been about is uh, stepping into what's hard and, and just embracing it instead of avoiding it. hundred percent. Mm. Get in the ice bath, man. Yeah, I think I'm going to do that. Do it. And all you have to do, so this is how I started. So I could talk about this forever. I just, I'm so obsessed. So I started having cold showers in the morning 
before I went into an ice bath. So like end of the shower, 30 seconds on the cold at the back end of the shower and then build that up to a point where you just get into a cold shower. Start there. And then once you're having cold showers every morning and not spending 10 minutes hyperventilating before you get in, like you actually just go turn the shower on and get in the cold shower. Once you get used to that, then I reckon you'd be ready for an ice bath. I'm so keen. Do it, man. Do it. Um, this podcast conversation was not meant to be an ad for ice bars. <laughs> <laughs> but it turned into one. Uh, that's just because I'm passionate about it. I just, I'm really grateful to you, mate, for just sharing your story with me and for reconnecting. And I just... I love that we sort of found each other again in this season of life in sobriety because it's so nice to know that you are genuinely happy. And I think out of this place for, for you, it's going to be, it will be your best work when it comes. It will, it will absolutely be um, the best stuff. And the stuff that you did before now is still magic and still amazing because it's yours. But this just has a bit of an extra shine, I think, because you've tapped into the source and it's so obvious. Yeah. It's so obvious to me. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you so much. I appreciate hearing that. It's all true, man. Are you happy? I'm so happy. Mm. How long have you, you been married? Longer than I've been a mum. I have a four and a half year old little boy and he's just like a diamond. I've been married for like seven years or something. Seven years. Awesome. How's it, how's it, how's it like being a mum? It's really cool. It's terrifying because this little human is like literally a mini version of me, a little boy, but he looks like me, which is weird. Um, and like that, oh my God, it's literally, it's like a part of your heart dancing on the outside of your body constantly. Mm. Like it's just, it's so magical and so amazing. But it's so hard because constantly I'm like, it's just going to screw him up. <laughs> like, it's so, man, it's so challenging, but it is, it's really cool. I love it. I really, I really, really love it. Since getting clean, I've like, it's one thing I've realized is how, how badly I want to have kids and start a family. Like, I'm I getting, love I'm that for you. Now. I'm like 37, so I'm not leaving it a little bit late, but I'm still so keen. Like, I love that, man. I think it'll be amazing. Little Henry is just, yeah, he's just the best, man. He's so That's cool. So cool. I've, I've seen the way it's changed my, my mate's life. Like, Pez having kids has just been, has changed his life remarkably. Yeah. yeah. Um, they do. I can't wait. I'm so pumped for you, man. Mm. Thanks for the chat and um, let's keep in touch, huh? For sure. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Hey. Oh, like absolute pleasure. All the best, Maz. Thanks, mate. Thanks for listening. Make sure you click follow so you don't miss an episode. New episodes are published every Monday. You can follow us on TikTok at Last Drinks or catch up with me on Instagram at Maz Compton. Stay curious.